This episode of Tales from the Backlog is brought to you by the wonderful patrons of the Tube Podcast Network. Some personal heroes of mine like Chris Nelson, the Top 3 Podcast Crew, Zolgeek, Eric Guess, Rick Firestone, Nick Ficori, Jill, Soccer, ZNA, Cupcake, Kyle, Christian S., Matt, aka Stormageddon, JD, Doug Leaf, Jason Emery, Rob Shack, Brian Skersha, Randall, Jake Martin, Jenny E., and many more have all chosen to support the show by going to patreon.com slash realdavejackson and kicking a few bucks a month my way. And in return, they're getting some bonus goodies like bonus episodes of the show, voting on what games I cover on the show, and much more. If that sounds interesting to you, once again, that's patreon.com slash realdavejackson. Any and all support is always appreciated. And with that being said, let's get on to the show. Hello, everybody. My name is Dave Jackson, and you're listening to Tales from the Backlog. This is a video games review podcast where each week I'm joined by a guest to bring a game out of the backlog, play it, and discuss. We have a special episode today because we're not talking about one game. We're going to talk about many games today, uh, about games that are set in cool, real-world places. But before we get into that, I have two wonderful guests with me today. They are both friends of the show, first-time guests on the show, uh, cultural gaming connoisseurs, Randall Quiggle, welcome. Yo. <laughs> uh, man of few words, I, I love it. Well, I, I, I would say I love it, but this is a podcast, you gotta talk a little bit. We gotta have words, Randall. <laughs> oh, what are, what are uh, we're words? also joined today uh, by Ozzy Garcia. Ozzy, welcome. Thank you, thank you, Dave, and uh, thank you for having me. I'm glad to now be part of the Tales from the Backlog lore. Uh, I am now uh, part of the culture of Tales from the Backlog. So um, thank you for integrating me and for being so considerate of presentation. Of um, course. <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> other retired podcasters. Right, yeah. Uh, retired from the Region Free Gamers podcast. And you People will have heard Ozzy and Randall um, on the Retro Hangover podcast several times. If you are uh, fans of that show, which you should be, and uh, I have a feeling we'll talk about Retro Hangover a little bit later in the show. Just a little tease. Today, we are going to talk about games that are set in real places. Um, but in order to narrow this down and really drill into the reason I wanted to talk about this, uh, we're going to talk about games set in the real world or kind of, you know, slightly dramatized versions of real places. But we are excluding really common video game settings like the United States and Western Europe and Japan. So as much as I want to spend the next hour talking about Yakuza games, not today. Sorry. <laughs> um, we we have many, many hours on the podcast already talking about Yakuza. So I wanted to kind of focus on games that are set in other places around the world, uh, maybe even historical real world settings, and specifically games that kind of give you a window into some aspects of that culture or their history or any combination of those things uh, where you might even learn something. How about that? Uh, so as much as I, you know, love the Hitman series to give another example, when I play Hitman and you do the level in Romania in Hitman 3, I don't learn anything about Romanian culture by doing that. The, the level's on a train or like 
there's a level in China in Hitman 3, but I don't really learn much about China. I'm just, you know, I'm choking people out. I'm taking their clothes. <laughs> That's what you do. So we we want to drill into games that are kind of highlighting culture and history as, you know, one of the main things of those games. So uh, I will get us started early on with with the kind of game I played recently that inspired this topic, which is um, Detention by Red Candle Games. Um, have you guys played Detention before? I have not. It, it's it, the, the, the little I know about it is that they're made from the team that made Devotion, and right. Devotion was banned in, in China, and uh, it ended up being subsequently banned in uh, all the other major storefronts like Steam and uh, Epic Game Stores, etc. So that's that's what I know. I know it's a horror title. I know it's first person. Um, so I was really curious when I saw it here, and I said, hmm, that picks my interest. Yeah. Um, so looking forward to hearing. And uh, pretty much the same deal uh, was turned like it, I, I know detention from from devotion mostly because of the whole storefront controversy and whatnot. And the moment that I heard that Red Candle Games essentially just said, you know, f you to the to the CCP whenever they just made it was like an off color joke or whatever in their in their game, and then it got taken down. I was like, hmm. Looks like I need to go play this game. And then uh, Chris, Chris from the Retro Hangover podcast actually streamed playing it. And that was how I got introduced to it. And I was like, oh, not only is this game good, but these guys are completely within their right, like with defending their game. So I was like, hmm. And you and I learned a lot um, just from it's not that long of a game as well. Yeah, Um I have not played Devotion. I have it listed on here because Detention and Devotion are both set in Taiwan. That's where this uh, dev studio is from. They're from Taiwan. Uh, Detention is a, a third-person point-and-click set in the 1960s when Taiwan was under martial law in their you know their mm. own history. Uh, Devotion is set in the 1980s in Taipei, which is the capital. Uh, the reason I, I kind of like latched onto this um, a couple of reasons. Number one, I've traveled to Taiwan a couple of times back when I lived in Asia. Uh, I really loved traveling there. I did some couch surfing there, stayed with some local people, had a great time. And then playing detention especially, and like I know what happens in devotion because I at one point I was convinced I'd never play it. So I spoiled the story for myself. Uh, it's cool. <laughs> and it it it's a very specific cultural thing again. Uh, and yeah. I don't want to talk too much about it because it, it gets into spoilers and also I haven't played it. But um, detention is set during this martial law period in Taiwan. And the fact that they're living under martial law with, you know, censorship and like heavy propaganda and all of that and, uh, you know, punishment for speaking out against the government, stuff like that, uh, really felt like it was a unique window into their history. Um, and it's a horror game, so they use that to effect uh, within the horror genre. But this was the game that I played, and I thought, like, this is really cool how, you know, this indie studio has made a game about their own culture, their own history, tied it into the horror genre, set it out into the world, and now people like me can play this game and just get a glimpse of that. And I think that that's uh, really valuable, uh, especially for, I think it's valuable for everybody to learn a little bit of stuff like that through the media that you consume. And so many of our games are set in the United States or Japan or Western Europe or 
completely fictional places, right? So you don't get windows into cultures that you're not familiar with very often. So yeah, Detention was the first game I wanted to kind of bring up here as the kind of shining example for this podcast. Yeah. And 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 I think they've the the most I, I think promising aspect of of this entire episode is that I feel like games have a unique ability to really transport you into a particular time and place. And if done mm-hmm. right, it really does feel like you can taste what it felt like to be in that particular point in time. For example, I know we're not talking uh, about Japan, but when you look at the My Summer Adventure games, that transports you to being a child in the 1970s in the Japanese countryside and being there for the summer. And it gives you the sights and sounds that something like a movie would not really be able to achieve in full extent because it's a 2D plane. I mean, notwithstanding the possibility of having 3D glasses or something. But you can't really say there's a house there or there's a person there. Let me go to them or let me go to this side of the town or let me check this out and and maybe read a log or something that gives you some more flavor. I think the very best examples of the games that, you know, manage to convey this cultural slice of life, you know, to say it that way, it's one, they're authentic. You know, they're authentic in that they're being told most likely by either someone that knows that culture quite well or that respects that culture quite well. I don't think that it is necessary to be from that culture to tell that story. I don't believe that cultural appropriation is really an issue, you know, in all cases necessarily. But I, what I do want to see is, is stories that are told well in a way that respects their origin. And, and the ability to really say, hey, you're going to be transported to this very specific time and place in Taiwan in the 1960s. I, I don't know if there are many other pieces of media that can achieve that, to be honest. And then you add the layer of potential even virtual reality in the future. And and, and really, it's just a, a boundless possibilities that could arise from, from managing to mine all the different cultures. Because there's so many, many, many different you know materials that you can mine from so many different cultures. That to me, it, it almost feels a little bit short-sighted to keep focusing on the same few Western cultures and tropes. Because mm-hmm. it's like, if you're struggling for creativity, dude, just go out and find, you know, a local, you know, kosher and, and you're going to get something really cool and interesting because every culture has its own mythology. And I don't mean in the, in the gods and, 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 and heroes kind of sense, in the sense of they have their own folklore. And, and honestly, I, I, I wish that more games did this. And what I realized in researching for this episode is that, incredibly enough, finding the games to talk about is harder than you would think it is. Yep. Because most games are either Western in style, Western derived, or they may have some sort of influence, but it's very tangential. Um, so it's it's really to me, it's kind of a missed opportunity. Yeah. yeah I, um, I, I th- go ahead, Randall. Oh yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to build off the point of the 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 Westernization of most things because. I mean, ninety percent of fantasy is built off of uh, you know, like the the foundation laid by Tolkien, which was mm-hmm. a, a a very westernized version of fantasy that he wrote while you know fighting in World War Two. You know, uh, it's <laughs> it's it's very interesting that even whenever you go completely fantastical with you know humans, elves, and dwarves, um, 
that still has deep ties to at least Western, you know, Europe sensibilities and uh, cultures. Yeah, same same with sci-fi. And, you know, if, if you go, you know, based on that through line, it's almost like if every fantasy or high fantasy setting takes place in the English countryside. <laughs> so yeah. the bucolic, <laughs> you know, English countryside of, of Tolkien's, uh, you know, past. Um, but you do see that that influence, that Western influence really seeps through even to settings that are not realistic in nature. And, and that was kind of disheartening to see. Yeah, I, I think that like one of the things one of the things that I think is going to come up with the examples that we talk about today is that uh, indie games, again, are like the bastion for this type of representation of different places and cultures. Um, just like indie games are often a bastion for new creative ideas uh, in the gaming industry. And the fact that making video games has become more accessible over the years means that more and more people, no matter where they're from, are starting to gain the ability to make games with polish uh, about the places that they uh, have experienced. And I think that that's going to come up a lot with other games that we talk about today. And of course, we'll have some AAA level games in here too. Uh, but I do think that we're going to have some some real indies stick out here, which is exciting. So um, I will kick it over to you, Randall. Uh, what is one game that you brought for this conversation here? Yeah, so uh, one. I guess we'll just you know immediately swing into. I guess it would be considered a double A title mm-hmm. if the, if people still use that term nowadays to describe like semi published works. Um, Anyways, uh, that the example that I brought first was the Stalker series, like the the first three games, but mostly Shadow of Chernobyl because that's the one that most people know, and the one that tends to have uh, the most cultural significance, at least. Um, I mean, Skies. Uh, I think it's Skies Over Pripyat is uh, another good one. Or is it Clear Skies? Uh, I can't remember the title right now. <laughs> but uh, anyways, the main the main Stalker game, Shadows of Chernobyl, the, the main reason I wanted to bring that one is just how deeply Eastern European that game is. Like, from the main language of spoken, like, you have to deliberately change the language to English. Um, and most of the time... Uh, it's a bad idea to do so because they didn't, if I remember correctly, they only had, they only had like one or two voice actors record English lines. Mm. Um, everything else was recorded in Russian or Ukrainian. And the, the main crux of the whole thing uh, for people who I don't know how you wouldn't know, but just in case you don't stalker is a first person survival shooter game taking in, taking place in the Chernobyl exclusion zone. So right in what, what would it be like cardinal direction wise in Ukraine? It's like the North. But it's not not a geography podcast. So I think you're good. (laughs) Uh, Whatever you get my point. Uh, But uh, to, to bring some examples of like the kind of things that just playing the game uh, very much introduces most people to was again it's mostly spoken in russian or ukrainian uh all of the architecture is like soviet era or post-soviet era architecture and uh, a lot of the 
the architecture is broken down military bases, um, kind of showing the Russian influence in Ukrainian territory at the time. All of the monsters in those games are built off of Ukrainian folklore and myths. Ooh. So the, the, the things created from the uh, anomalies are all built off of actual myths and legends that uh, Ukrainians came up with because they could not enter the exclusion zone. So they would be like, oh, someone's dog got lost and it came back this hideous beast um, type deal. And then one of my favorite parts about that game is there isn't a lot of music in it, but when there is music, it's all based off of the classical acoustic, um, like Slavic, like tones. And so it's while it's not, you know, it's not reading you a history book of uh, Ukrainian and Soviet um, history, it it is just a bleeding that um, that whole culture. I could go into a diatribe about the fact that the whole game is based off of a book published in the seventies um, called Roadside Picnic. Um, long story short, with that one is that. That book shouldn't have been published in the seventies, based on how it was, how it was written. the the con the entire context of the book was about Soviet censorship uh, for even fictional writings, because uh, Roadside Picnic is a science fiction novel, and it it was incredibly difficult for uh, Arkady and Boris. I I cannot remember how to pronounce their last name. It was a, it was a brother like duo to publish it. It took them years to get it published, hmm. um, but they were actually able to do it. And it was an incredible feat to be able to, to publish that science fiction work back in those times. And then it was developed into Stalker. So again, that, uh, that Soviet era criticism of the government and censorship um, mm -hmm. kind of bleeds into the game as well. Uh, but that's one of my, like my well, biggest example and randall i mean uh it's it's funny that you mentioned that because before stalker the video game stalker the video game gets its name from stalker the movie which was uh, made by andrei tarkovsky um probably the the greatest um soviet director of all time and you know the funny that the interesting not funny thing about andrei tarkovsky is that his films were so controversial that it is generally understood that he was poisoned by the Soviet government, you know, him and his mm. family. So him and his family died, you know, over time from cancer. Um, you know, and they said that it was it was a slow poisoning. So it's it's very relevant that this this piece of media, you know, in, in large part, you know, took so much pain literally and, and, and sacrifice in order to be able to be brought, you know, to readers and, and to viewers. So um so it's it's very interesting. And one of the things that I will say it's that I don't see Soviet era Cold War material being mined enough. And and yes, we do see Cold War spy films and, and media and, and the James Bond mold, etc. But really Soviet era paranoia, um, it's not really used a lot. You know, uh there there is, you know, a lot of stories that could be told about you know, East Germany, there's a lot of stories about the being under the Soviet bloc. There's stories about the war in Afghanistan, you know, with, with the Soviets, etc. There's so many areas of, of Soviet, you know, history that it's just not being used nowadays. And like I said, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting piece because it was kind of the diametrical opposite of what was considered Western 
and it was an alternative to kind of the Western um, approach to things. And, uh, you know, me having grown up in Cuba under, you know, a kind of Soviet influence, you know, my cartoons growing up were Soviet cartoons. I, you know, I grew up watching Soviet movies, etc., and, and under Soviet architecture in many ways. Um, it's almost nostalgic to me. And, and it's really, you know, to me, a shame that I don't see more of that. Recently, we saw it in uh, that very controversial uh, game, Atomic Hearts, I believe. Oh, yeah. uh, that was really mining yeah. a lot of the Soviet-era tropes, uh, but in a very sci-fi, Bioshocky way. But I think there's a story to be told about the experience of leaving, living under Soviet espionage and paranoia um, you know, during that Cold War period that, that begs to be told. Yeah, I think a, a lot of the media, like with that kind of flavor that I was experienced, uh, exposed to is mostly, like you said, like the James Bond, like the, you've got your villains, uh, that are like the Russians and stuff like that. But it seems like people have moved on. And the, the only thing I can think of in recent years is that show Chernobyl, uh, from yeah. HBO, which was excellent. Like one of the best little mini series I've ever seen. And the and Americans, terrifying. to some extent, even the Americans, you know, even though that took mm. place in the United States, it was about a Soviet, you know, family um, yeah. living as spies here. But this um, this game, Stalker, is an, it's another example of uh, this development team is Ukrainian. Uh, so they're they're pulling from their own culture. They're pulling, from, you know, it, I, I don't know where these people grew up, but like, I, I find it hard to believe you could not grow up under the shadow of this, like, you know disaster that happened in your home country uh, uh, especially it's it's interesting to think like as an american like the our country is so fucking big that like something like this could happen and it's 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 almost like a lifetime away but and not saying ukraine is small but it is you know relatively small from my perspective uh so people growing up under the shadow of this this kind of, you know, it's been hanging over everything that they, you know, hanging over their lives is what I'm trying to say. And so uh, this this game, I, I always wondered, like, how real world was it? Like, how, how far over the line into, like, sci-fi horror or whatever did it cross? But it sounds like, you know, you're fighting monsters and stuff like that, but it sounds like the more grounded stuff is pretty real world. Well, and I will say, I mean, when you see the trailer to Stalker 2, I mean, one of the things I really was intrigued by is that it does keep that kind of very Slavic flavor. Mm. Um, I think it's stuck in development hell now, but, you know, I, I would really love to see it. I think it's coming to Game Pass or, or like whenever it's released. Um, but the thing that scared me away from Stalker was that from what I understood, the mechanics were very obtuse. It's a very hard game. And so I kind of shied away from it, but, you know, kind of hearing Randall talk about it now, it just feels like that's something I should get over and just try to play it. I mean, the the game in itself, while it, you can make it easier for yourself, it's actually, I, I think it's a pretty accessible game. It just appears uh, to be difficult. Um, mm -hmm. And it's kind of by design uh, that way, because the game also really tries to hammer home the the absolute resilience of the Ukrainian people to even live through um, a situation like this where the exclusion zone has now turned into, um, okay, so we're still under 
you know, Soviet, the, the Soviet shadow, how are we going to take this situation and make the best out of it? So there are people that go out into the zone, which is what it's called, and uh, rec- like acquire artifacts based in, you know, pure science fiction that, um, and I, I think I think it was either Ozzy or Dave that that mentioned the what was it the my brain is escaping me right now. Uh, it, it had to it had to deal with um, the paranoia. There we go. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the the objects that they collect are are based in um, in Soviet history of paranoia. Like uh, oh the the Americans have have this like fantastical ability to to spy on all of their people um and they talk about that kind of stuff in the game as well where the 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 russians are just as terrified of the zone as they are of the americans and just how the people deal with with both situations at once cool so uh yeah we've got stalker shadow of shadow of chernobyl yeah shadow Mm -hmm. shadow of chernobyl okay shadow silver chernobyl was, a romantic was, saga taking yeah, that's, place that's what I was in I was like, that sounds <laughs> that doesn't sound right like the right tone yeah shadow <laughs> of chernobyl all right uh ozzy uh what did you bring for this well i kind of grouped it into different categories because I, I again as i said i i found it a little bit difficult to just really find games that really did this in a very meaningful way but the first category that i kind of looked at was just Stories derived from, in a way, Native American culture. And when I say American, I don't mean necessarily United States, but just American in the sense of America right. as a whole, um, even though I'll talk about Latin America separately. But the first one that, that, that I saw and that came to mind, I think it's probably the best example of, of really being able to communicate cultural heritage in a meaningful way. And that's a game called Never Alone. Or Kisima in in Yechuna, <laughs> which translates uh, in the um, Inupiaq language, which is the native Alaskans, to "I am not alone." Mm. And this is a game that came out in 2014, and it's very much in the limbo kind of mold, where it's a puzzle platformer. Okay. Um, and you play at a native girl, you know, Inupiaq girl called Nuna, uh, and she's you know com- accompanied by her her fox. And you basically go through this land, you know, this very snowy winter landscape of Alaska, and you see stories and you, you, you learn stories of the indigenous people. But what I find fascinating about this particular uh, game is that it was created in collaboration with the, the, the Inupiaq people. And you actually unlock developer documentaries Mm. interviewing the Inupiaq people and telling them, the elders telling their stories, you know, that relate to what you're playing. And literally, you know, you you unlock, these are the unlockables. So I, I think this is the very best form of unlockables. It's just like, okay, this was our influence. Here are the people that we consulted in order to tell you about the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's based on this, um, you know, cultural folkloric tale uh, that was told uh, by Robert Nasro Cleveland, it's a collection of stories called the stories of the Black River people. And really, this is what the game is. And, and the sad part is that the developers were actually funded, you know, by the, the Inupiaq uh, people um, and the Cook Inlet Tribal Council. And this is the only game they ever made. So I feel mm. like the game didn't do well enough, unfortunately. But this is probably about the best example of trying to 
manifest or bring to a greater audience the stories of native people that it's just not frequently told at all um so it's a short game it's going for sheep you know you may even have it because it's been part of a bunch of humble bundle uh deals um i understand that a sequel was announced maybe a year ago but it hasn't been released but i think it's one of the best examples of you know being able to tell the stories that are at risk of disappearing because there are just not enough people you know telling them um and and that's really something that fascinates me because really stories culture heritage is only as good as memory holds but if you put it down either in writing or better yet put it down into a video game in which you can actually connect with younger generations and an even broader audience because you don't have the language barrier i think you could really make the stories kind of immortal in a way um and so i think this is one of the best examples of this particular situation and, and this particular kind of docu style game approach where it's still fun it's still a puzzle platformer but oh by the way you know you're really getting to absorb yourself in in this native you know and folkloric culture so that's kind of the first one that i wanted to to just kind of chat about yeah that's yeah. real cool like the the fact that they you know consulted the people who know the stories the best and then it it sounds like it sounds like it it like walks the line between like edutainment and like video games about you know cultures and history and stuff but more on the video game side it just happens to be that like the story in this game is these uh you know these folk tales and history and stuff like that uh yeah as opposed to like you know, I'm picturing, you know, an edutainment where it's like, you're going to, you're going <laughs> to, you're going to learn boy. Yeah. You're going to learn it. <laughs> this is, this is technically a video game, but you're the, the reason you're here is to learn. Um, yeah. But this yeah. sounds like a perfect uh, game for this topic here. This is a, a culture and a history that I would bet most people listening to this, myself included, know absolutely nothing about. And like you said, the fact that they're able to uh, make a video game and put it out there. I, I feel like, you know, it's tough to get a game out there for tons and tons of people to play and buy. Uh, and like you said, it. I'm looking at the reviews. It got pretty middling reviews. Uh, didn't, you know, I, I. if it's the only thing they ever made, then maybe it didn't sell well, like you said. But I think making video games is like a unique way for people to get these types of stories out there as opposed to like how difficult would it be for these same creators to make a movie and like mass produce a movie yeah. about this type of thing. Uh, I feel like, you know, making video games is really fucking hard and it's an accomplishment anytime anyone finishes a video game uh, and sends it out to people. But that gives you like a unique opportunity to spread it like, further than I think a movie or something like that, or a, a book uh, would reach a lot of people. So this is cool. I like this. Well, and, and you yeah. say middling reviews, but I, I think if anything, it was probably divisive in a way because, you know, Eurogamer gave it a 10 out of 10. Yeah. Um, others gave it an eight. Um, when I looked at some of the YouTube uh, reviews on that, they were all very positive. So I feel like you know, just reading between the lines, this might have been a game that came out at the wrong place, wrong time. And reviewers being reviewers, they were looking for something more gamey, perhaps, or something that was more innovative. Whereas I feel like if you just look at it as, hey, I am going to immerse myself into this experience that I am not at all familiar with. 
Right. And you might come away thinking, wow, this was really fucking cool. Um, so, so that's kind of where it seems like I land. Um, so it's a quick two hour, two to three hour game. So it's, if anything, worth playing just to learn something new. Yeah. And just to give a little bit of context on the reviews, the parts that you're trying to highlight here, you know, showcasing this, uh, this culture and history and the documentary style videos and stuff, that's the stuff that everyone seems to love. Uh, about the game. And then the gameplay is a little bit more uh, divisive as these, like you said, limbo and inside style games. Um, Gameplay is pretty hit and miss in a lot of those types of games. But it seems like the most important part uh, about this, they got that right. Yeah. And just two two quick hits on Native Americans. There's Mm. one called When Rivers Were Trails. It's free on itch.io. And it takes place in the 1890s in the Trail of Tears. Mm. Um, so it's very similar to, um, uh, what, what was the game where the water tastes like wine? Um, oh, yeah, which, yeah. which I wasn't a huge fan of. I, I thought that it was a very flawed game, but I did like some of the stories that I told, but this is basically, again, a game talking about indigenous culture, native American cultures, and it brings in, you know, those native American writers to tell those stories. So one, it has a pretty cool art style. And two, it's actually using the stories from this very, you know, authentic, you know, source. So I find that to be very helpful. And the other one that I just kind of wanted to like put out there just as a, as a cameo of sorts is Prey from 2006. Um, right. mind you, this is a sci-fi game, but I loved, loved, loved that that game had a Native American protagonist. And it's a shame that we never saw a sequel in that line because one of the things that I love about that game is that it starts out on an Indian reservation and your main character is just fed up with being on this reservation. And it just mm-hmm. kind of, for a time when that wasn't seen enough, you know, to be placed right there in a reservation where that just wasn't, you know, put out there. I found that to be very cool. Of course, it then ended up being something completely out of this world, quite literally. Um, but I <laughs> like the fact that it started out from that very unusual spot. Yeah. Um, and I hope that someone else tells that story. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, that's and it, it's a shame that 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 game is one of those that like people who played it uh, remember it fondly for stuff like that. And then for people like me, all I know about it is that, you know, they made uh, Arcane made Prey in 2017 and they were mandated to name the game Prey uh, as like a spiritual successor or some shit to to that game against their wishes. Uh, that's really <laughs> all I know about that game, which is a shame. Yeah, I mean, look, it's not a very good game. I, I find that the game really was hurt by the fact that it was in development hell for so long. Um, the developer at the time was just not going through very easy times. Um, and it was just kind of salvaged together, almost like a Duke Nukem Forever type of situation. Um, but it does have some cool ideas. And, and again, I mean, it has this very, very interesting character. Gameplay itself, I mean, it has, like I said, some very cool ideas, but it doesn't really come together at the end. Um, but it's worth applauding that it was doing this way before anyone else was doing it. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see, which of my remaining games, uh, I, so I feel like I kind of took some of the easy ones up at the top of the list cause I made the, the doc before I sent it to you guys. Um, but, uh, let's, uh, I haven't talked about sleeping dogs on this podcast before. Let's talk about sleeping dogs. Let's let's talk about sleeping dogs. The whole reason why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Legit, one of the best GTA uh, style games ever 
fucking made. Exactly. Yeah, uh, this was made by United Front Games, um, and it's set in contemporary Hong Kong. Uh, and Randall kind of gave the pitch. It's GTA in Hong Kong. That's basically what the game is. But um, crucially, not set in an American city, uh, you know, not set in New York or Miami or something like that. Um, and I liked the story in Sleeping Dogs way more than I've ever liked a GTA story. Uh, the story and tone I felt is way more my speed uh, in Sleeping Dogs. And it takes it takes advantage of the Hong Kong setting to tell its story too. Um, I've uh, been to Hong Kong several times uh, traveling. I have some good friends that live in Hong Kong still. Uh, it's it's a cool place and it has a really interesting history. And I think that the history of, um, you know, British colonialism and Chinese influence uh, all mashed together makes for like a very interesting culture there. And you can see it when you visit Hong Kong and you can see it in Sleeping Dogs, despite the fact that this is a, you know, a, a mafia crime drama story. So it's not like a a realistic story of like the everyday people in Hong Kong. But uh, that kind of influence, the British influence on Hong Kong is on full display. Uh, the foreign influence on Hong Kong is in full display in the story of Sleeping Dogs. Um, so just to like give the reason why it still fits in this category, despite being kind of a ridiculous uh, story, the setting is really fucking cool. And it, it's just... It's it's one of those games. It's a cool feeling to play a game set in a place, realistically recreated uh, version of a place that you've been in real life and that you are familiar with. And I got that while playing Sleeping Dogs, and it rocks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, go go ahead, Randall. I was just going to say my my favorite part about the entirety of Sleeping Dogs is um, I really love mafia movies. I love mafia games. The mafia mm -hmm. series itself, it's an amazing set of games. And when I played Sleeping Dogs in it, um, one of my favorite things in, in the type of history was seeing how they portrayed the Chinese mafia in, in that game. From what I remember, um, it's it's incredibly interesting to see the like the parallels uh between the the two types of groups um even though they would have never interacted with each other cuz they like the the like the mafia that most people know versus the mafia that uh is portrayed in that game i, I guess you could not you could call it something else but that's um the descriptor i'll use it um you're like huh there is what it feels like to be Western influence and something that would have never been influenced by Western sensibilities or culture. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I think, uh, I think the distinction as well is that, you know, you could have a game set in Hong Kong that would still feel inauthentic. Um, I think where the game went above and beyond was that it really tried to replicate not only the city itself, but kind of the little details here and there that, that make this city tick in a way um first of all i mean the they speak you know in 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 cantonese from time to time so they go from english to cantonese and they say swear words in cantonese and i had not seen that i have not seen that in many games where they feel so comfortable just going outside of english and mm -hmm. granted i mean of course english makes sense to be spoken here because the english presence was so 
strong in Hong Kong for so many years, but you can see the melting pot of, yeah, we have an English presence, but we're still Asian in this particular way. I'm not going to yeah. say any particular nationality other than Hong Kong. Um, and so you see that. You also see, for example, the emphasis on karaoke, you know, where you can actually go and do karaoke, where it's a mini game, but this is something that's important to these people. I mean, this is the way that they kind of, you know, have this communal activity and it's through karaoke. And I think the most interesting part to me about Sleeping Dogs, it's okay. It's kind of a ripoff of Infernal Affairs, um, that very awesome trilogy of films of Hong Kong films with Andy Lau. Um, and um, I forgot the other actress name. Um Terrific. If you haven't seen it, they're the films that uh, The Departed was based on. Um, so The Departed was a remake of Infernal Affairs 1. So basically, a ripoff, you have this this cop, this American cop, um, that infiltrates uh, the triads in Hong Kong. But the, the awesome part about this is that it's not only a recreation of Hong Kong culture, but in particular, it's a recreation of the immigrant experience. Because me as an immigrant, I came here when I was 10 to the United States. It really speaks to the fact that Wei is a Hong Kong man born in Hong Kong that ended up emigrating to San Francisco in order to find a better life with him and his sister. His sister kind of goes off, you know, and and, and gets into really bad, you know, situations. And unfortunately, she dies. Then he comes back to Hong Kong and he's trying to reintegrate himself into this old culture nominally because he's infiltrating it as part of his operation but realistic it's because he wants to reconnect with his culture and you see that kind of division between those two worlds it's more about than just hey i am really liking being with this gang of criminals that i happen to actually really like no it's about i am getting in touch with my original culture i'm getting in touch with my childhood friends and they matter to me and it mm -hmm. feels like trying to reintegrate yourself into that culture it's almost like being undercover because you can't really be that person anymore. And that's really the immigrant experience at core. You don't really fit either way because to mm. the other side, you're seen as a foreigner. And to them, you're seen as someone that is another. It's yet yeah, you're no longer part of us anymore, you know? And I feel that Sleeping Dogs in particular does that so, so well. And there are some like storyline threads there that that make me think that the developers were really trying to tap that nerve because for example i mean there's this character that you can romance and she's played actually by uh, emma stone you know academy award winner emma stone um and she's uh you know an american girl that's you know kind of backpacking through through hong kong or staying in hong kong and you start kind of dating her you start kind of going out and then you find out that she's only into you because it has, she has this asian fetish you know, and it kind of speaks mm. to this very real experience of like, are you seeing me as a person or are you seeing me because, you know, you like what I represent? So I feel like the developers, you know, really had their finger on this nerve. And it's such a shame that this game didn't do better because I, I think it's not only one of the best GTA likes. I think it's one of the best games of all time, to be quite frank. Um, mm. And a large part of that is because, yeah, some of the elements in the story are ridiculous. But there's an authenticity in characters and lived-in experiences there that I don't see very often. Not only in, in, in games, in, in movies, in any type of media. So, um, 
big reason why I wanted to come here is, is <laughs> play Sleeping Dogs. Really, oh, yeah. you can get it for like three bucks most of the time. So yeah. go play Sleeping Dogs. I haven't seen anybody that played Sleeping Dogs and said, yeah, it was okay. <laughs> so anyways, I don't know if I went on a tangent there, but that's that's why I think Sleeping Dogs resonates so strongly with me. Yeah, no, that's great stuff. It is a very interesting uh, spyglass into a culture that a lot of people maybe wouldn't wouldn't understand or wouldn't see normally um uh it it also kind of wears its um it kind of wears its criticism on its sleeve um of of the the culture that it's surrounded by because i mean it not to like get into the real world politics of all things but due to its location and um in its recent um I would consider it recent in terms of how old Hong Kong is, but it's mm-hmm. more recent re- uh, rejoining to China in the in the nineties. Um, you know, there, there is pretty overt criticism of of the government in in that game. That <laughs> most people could probably tell that the games that I tend to enjoy that do talk about other cultures tend to criticize either the government or the <laughs> like uh, people who criticize the culture within mm-hmm. those games. I think Ozzy touched on something that I had kind of taken for granted, uh, but something that is true about like the immigrant experience and especially the experience of somebody who is from the place and then goes to another place, grows up in the other place and then tries to come back. And that is something that like I spent a long time overseas uh, living in Korea but I did not have trouble integrating back into the U.S. But what I did notice is that the uh, Koreans who, like, maybe they're born in Korea or maybe they were born in the U.S. and then move to Korea and try and integrate back, a lot of times they have a really hard time with that. And so the experience of the the main character in Sleeping Dogs sounds like it's, you know, right along those lines and something that I experienced kind of secondhand with people that I, you know, met and hung out with and learned their experience uh, while living over there. So that's great to, uh, to touch on here. Um, And it's something that like, when I played the game, I didn't key in on, uh, perhaps I should replay it and feature it on the podcast here. Now that I have a podcast where I can dedicate the time and uh, focus on stuff like that. Play sleeping dogs. (laughs) Yeah, please sleeping dogs. I think Wario64 on Twitter posts every time it goes on sale. So uh, just follow <laughs> Wario. You'll know you'll get it for two bucks and uh, you'll have a good time. Squ- Square Enix can't get rid of it fast enough. Square Enix <laughs> was so disappointed with the sales that it's just giving it away all the time. Oh, Square Enix being disappointed with sales. Name a better combination. <laughs> yeah. Oh, our Final Fantasy game didn't sell bukus. Uh, yeah. I guess it was a flop, guys. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, Randall, what's what's another one that you brought? So I guess I'll kind of combine two uh, examples together because of how I wanted to incorporate them into this list. So um, I'll commend Dave and Ozzy for having actual like cultural examples that don't like kind of um, build off of fiction to use. um, I mean, it's kind of word salad, but use allegory to then talk about culture. Mm -hmm. Um, but the the two examples that I want to bring up are this war of mine and uh, suzerain. So this war of mine is a survival strategy 
game. I, I guess you could call it a roguelike. I don't want to call it that. It's mostly just a survival strategy game. And Suzerine is a political, I would almost call it a political thriller strategy game. Mm. Um, and I'll I'll describe both games in tandem and then why I picked them for, for my list. So a lot of people probably know what this War of Mine is. If you don't, I almost want you to t- pause this, go find it on one of the bundles that they've probably put their game on for free, especially during the beginning of the Ukraine, like, um, like, in, uh, I don't know what the politically correct way of talking about it, but I'll just say Ukrainian like Ukrainian war, man. I mean, just the, call it like it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say invasion. Um, yeah. But anyways, uh, they, they were, pra- they were actually giving that game away for people to play it, to use as an example. Um, so with that, Go play it real quick and then come back to this. But this war of mine is a perfect example built on the ramifications of global powers not understanding what things do to the to the small people at home. And Suzerain, it is showing what the local uh, ramifications are for the decisions that global powers can make as well. So with this war of mine, it takes place in a fictional city where a war has broken out. Uh, there is an invading army that is completely just destroying the city while there are hundreds of thousands of citizens still living in, in that city. Uh, you control either a small group of survivors or a small group of like a family uh, and it's just, the whole point is just to survive. You 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 know raid houses that may have other people living in them. You can try to barter or you have to kill them. It's it's incredibly gut wrenching. And mm. uh, the the main reason I wanted to bring this war of mine up is not because of just what the the game shows you. Um, since it takes place in a fictional city, it doesn't overtly tell you where it is, but the developers have pretty much come out and said, even though this game was made in 2014, the moment that Ukraine got invaded, they told people, please just go play this game. And this is going to be a one-to-one, if not a thousand times worse in real life. And they, they wanted people to understand this is how cultures are affected by it. And it, this this will be a criticism. It Western-like globalism or imperialism spreading across the pond and then mm-hmm. like like invading Iraq or um, Iran, something like that, or Russia invading Ukraine. Uh, and it's just, it it boils the culture down to a single person. And then it shows you, okay, how does, what what is one person left with if everything around them has been destroyed? Um, and so it's a huge, I feel like I'm just kind of talking in circles, but it's a, it's a big example on, when a person is able to survive in that type of situation that they bring with them a lot of their culture. And the, the game does show off a lot of kind moments where they, the characters will tell each other stories during downtime and they use real world examples in these, um, in these stories, whether it be from like world war two or something similar, Vietnam, stuff like that. Um, And then, I'll go ahead and shift to Suzerain, which is a strategy game, real quick, uh, where you take 
place as a president of a fictional country called Swordland. Uh, it is an allegory for Yugoslavia. That pretty much the only thing that they didn't say was uh, just calling it Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. Um, and you take uh, the role as the president. And your job is to just make sure that your country doesn't die. Um, and you have to make decisions of your people coming to you about, do I do I work with the people to to keep our history intact to to make sure you know the 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 people of of Sordland understand um I you know I'm here with them I'm not trying to destroy our history I'm not kowtowing to uh, to you know communism capitalism all that fun stuff and it's it's an incredible case study on how how people interact with with other cultures that don't necessarily care what the other culture thinks about them and just want to kind of push it onto them so both examples is just oh hey i believe my way of living is right so i don't care what you think i'm just going to push it onto you with suzerain it's more political and it's you know there isn't a lot of death uh it's just it's just stress with being a president. But with this war of mine, it's the example of, oh, well, I don't like your culture, so I'm going to invade your country and kill all of your people. And both sets of developers have talked about how, how much the, the, the influence of places like Ukraine, Iraq, Yugoslavia have like all worked into allowing them to make the game that they wanted to to have real world examples and just how deeply saddened that they had real world examples to point to. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and, and I've, I've seen this war of mine, I've got it in the bundle. I've, I've, I have it in my, um, in my backlog. Um, but I haven't been able to tell a tale from that particular segment of the backlog. Um, as I feel as I get older, um, and I have a two year old daughter, I feel like it's harder and harder to see that kind of suffering. Um, and this war of mine is probably one of the best examples of how gut-wrenching, you know, the world can be, uh, even if it's told in a fictional country. Um, I think it's the parallels are very clear. And they're kind of timeless because it's really about war refugees. It's about, you know, the victims of, of, of you know, atrocious acts of violence. And the older I get, the harder it is for me to absorb that kind of media. Mm-hmm. Um, not only in media... But also, you know, in real life, you know, I've had to limit my intake of news, you know, with the whole conflict in the Middle East, because it's just very harsh to to kind of take all that suffering. And, you know, I, I think I, I, I've done my part in, in knowing what's happening and being able to talk about what's happening. But it's very hard for me to experience that in video game form, um, yeah. because I just don't necessarily want to go through that gut wrenching emotional punch. And this uh, this studio specifically with this war of mine, they deal in this specific like bleak type of game because they also made Frostpunk, which is like one of <laughs> one of the bleakest games I've ever played. Uh, and, and I love it. A possible future game on Tales from the Backlog because now that I again now that I have a, a podcast to to dig into it, there's a bunch of interesting stuff to talk about in Frostpunk. I also own uh, this war of mine and haven't played it yet and. Just no great reason, probably except for kind of like you said, Ozzy, like I'm looking at my games on my Switch and I'm like, I could play this War of Mine or I could play Shovel Knight. 
Well, shovel <laughs> <laughs> night it is. Yeah, but uh, it's it, it it is a game that I I feel like I should play to um, get this kind of experience. This this studio is from Poland, uh, by the way. So even though they're not you know involved in a, a conflict right now, they certainly have their share of suffering in their past uh, as well. So it's yeah, it's it's this is a great example. And Suzerain sounds uh, interesting too from that kind of like management perspective like you you have the two scopes like you have the president all the way down to like the individual in uh this war of mine so those are good examples and good examples of like yeah they're not like they don't come out and say we're set in this specific real world place but it is not hard to just put a real place on those games and imagine those as uh those real historical types of settings so yeah, these are great examples. Yeah, I guess to 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 finally like hammer the point home with both of them, and to to echo what you said, Dave, uh, all it all it would take was for one of the developers to say, "Oh yeah, this is literally just set in X or Y," yeah, um, to get people to to understand what they're the point that they're trying to make. Um, with both of them, it while not overtly cultural, it the the message that they try to send is try to understand the people that you're interacting with um or where they're coming from before you decide that it's not that it's not important i guess yeah absolutely and like y- you know with the with this topic and the games that we're trying to highlight here it's it's valuable to show people like i i set it up as showing culture and history but it's also valuable to show uh, real experiences that real people are having right now as we're recording this podcast. So these are definitely valuable games to uh, shine the light on for sure. Um, Ozzy, what uh, what else do you have for this conversation here? Well, I, I also kind of want to touch about, you know, on, on, on Latin American, I guess, derived, uh, you know, stories or cultures. Um, and the frustrating part that I find here is that a lot of the times... It's just used for aesthetic purposes, mm-hmm. but not really to explain a broader culture. So one of the most common recurring themes is the Mexican Day of the Dead. I mean, it's almost like a trope in and of itself, the Day of the Dead, really. I mean, it's it's kind of bland at this point because it's used so often. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see Grim Fandango, you know, being perhaps the most notable one. Uh, definitely a much better game than StarCraft. Um, <laughs> sorry, that's a King of Games uh, joke. Good um, God, man! And um, yeah, I mean, Grim Fandango does that very well. But again, I mean, it's done by you know what used to be Lucas Arts um, and you know Tim Schafer and so forth, and and they're very respectful. And it's a very very cool setting, and it really kind of echoes all this mythology of Day of the Dead, but doesn't really go much more beyond just hey, this is cultural flavor. Um, or guacamole, um, which use, uses the Day of the Dead thematic as well as kind of the luchador type of Mexican thematic. But it's done by a Canadian studio, which, again, doesn't really care that much about, you know, kind of delving into the culture than just, again, using it for aesthetic purposes. Mm. Uh, you have games like Tunche, uh, which is a beat-em-up uh, that is uh, by Peruvian developers, and it actually takes place in you know kind of the Amazonian rainforest of sort. But again, I'm disappointed in that it doesn't really do anything with that culture other than just use it as flavor 
Um, another game would be Dandera. Um, Dandera is done by a Brazilian studio, and it kind of uses the Afro-American um, culture of Brazil um, to portray this uh, warrior called Dandara that's actually based on a real-life figure that was a freed uh, slave in Brazil that fought against um, her, her slave owners. But there, I mean, it's kind of a sci-fi tale just using this kind of figure as inspiration. And and again, it's it's kind of like a missed opportunity because there's so much to mine here. And in particular, what I wanted to kind of talk about is that there are some cultures that would really make for cool video games, even just beyond the cultural aspect. So, for example, the West African uh, Yoruba religion, which is very integrated into Caribbean cultures because so many of the slaves came from that West African region, so Senegal, um, Nigeria, etc. Um, they have their own mythology, which, you know, to the uninformed, you would call, for example, some of it Santeria, um, which is not the case. It's just, you know, kind of the manifestations of energy, etc., that this religion and this culture venerates. But it's, it has this whole pantheon of gods, you know, that are you know, that rival the Greek gods in terms of, you know, their their interesting aspects and their dynamics and their conflicts and their drama that could translate very well into a God of War-like or a Souls-like, uh, per se. Um, and it's just not mined enough. It's just really not, not used enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of, you know, I'm kind of putting out an APB, you know, to developers just, hey, this is a pretty cool setting, you know? So rather than you know, adapting Dante's Inferno, you know, a 14th century uh, poem, um, you know, maybe, you know, adapt your God of War like uh, through West African Yoruba religion. So um, that's just kind of what I wanted to talk about, you know, just the, the the fact that so many times we see this culture is portrayed in just a flavor or aesthetic point of view, mm-hmm. which I think there's some value in it because I want to see something other than just generic Western um, culture. Uh, but I do wish that they would go a little bit deeper than that. And, and like I said, there are just some settings that are very, very cool that, you know, some of them I am even missing because I just don't know about them. So, you know, again, just pick up a book, you know, pick up a book about different cultures and, and maybe use that for your next settings, dear developers. Yeah, this is one of those things where, like, I think as game development tools keep getting more accessible and widely distributed and um, hope more people get access to those tools. Uh, we should start to see more games about that. Now, the problem is finding them a lot of the time because there are so many games that come out on Steam and so many, like infinitely more that come out on Itch every single day that finding those games can be really tough. But uh, I, I think that like the fact that those tools are becoming more widespread gives more people an opportunity to kind of tell their story. And I think that's great. And hopefully we'll have better uh, representation than guacamelee and stuff like that. <laughs> I I heard that criticism about guacamelee and I didn't get far enough in that game. And I honestly, I don't know enough about that uh, tradition to like have that criticism or respond to that criticism myself. But I have heard that other places too. And I am not Mexican, but I am Latin, and so we share a lot of the same culture. And the the thing that I can say about Guacamele, it's a pretty cute game, you know, and I think mechanically it's very good. But within like five minutes of playing it, you can tell, oh, this wasn't made by 
origin like like you mm. know natives this wasn't made by an authentic group of, of folks and and that's where i i kind of go at it again like it's not an issue of cultural appropriation it's an issue of like if you're gonna use this you should do it in a way that if someone who is a native or who knows well about that culture doesn't feel like oh you just kind of slap things on you know without really taking the time to represent it in an authentic way mm-hmm. and and you can really tell from the first five minutes that that's the case that you could tell that this was made by by people that were not from that area um and that they did not in particular compared to like never alone or, or the other games we've talked about they were not made on consultation with people you know that do have that lived in knowledge mm. i will say one game that is forgotten by history and time and that it's actually <laughs> from my childhood Okay. Um, and you can actually probably remember it because it was a demo on Gex 3. So there was a demo of it on Gex, and it was done by Crystal Dynamics, who are now better known for the Tomb Raider games. It's called Akuji the Heartless. Okay. And Akuji is based on voodoo mythology and voodoo culture. So like Haitian voodoo culture. And the, the cool thing about Akuji, it's not a very good game. But the cool thing is that it really buys into that culture. It's not, you know, taking into account any kind of, you know, Western side of it. It's just like, yeah, it's fully immersed in Haitian voodoo culture. Whether it's accurate or not, I can't tell you. But it did just submerge itself completely and freely into this particular culture to build this universe. So cool kind of, you know, historical tidbit. You could probably find the game nowadays for like 12 bucks. It's actually on PSN if you want to get it on the ps3 uh ps1 classic if, if you were interested in that so if you want to see the game that crystal dynamics made between gex and soul reaver this is it cool yeah i i like the idea of um kind of not watering the culture down for the audience just being a hundred percent into it for sure Would you guys say we uh, go lightning round style through some other stuff we want to mention before getting into our um, community submissions for this episode? Yeah, man. Sure. Sounds good. All right. Um, I will just briefly shout out a game that I have not played, uh, but I, I do know enough about it to bring it up on the show, and that's Kingdom Come Deliverance, uh, which is by Warhorse Studios. Uh, they are from the Czech Republic. Uh, and this is set in historical Bohemia, which is the region that later became the Czech Republic. Uh, Kingdom Come Deliverance is an RPG. If you look at screenshots, it looks a lot like a Skyrim type game, but it is fully based in the history and realism uh, of your, like when your character starts, you can't fight. You're a piece of shit. Uh, it's, it's one of those where it's like, you have to learn. I think you even have to learn to read in that game. Like, you have to eat and drink that kind of realism. And um, I think they went, I, I've read uh, praise for them for going the distance as far as like doing their best to recreate an era in real history. Now, you may be acting out an unrealistic story in there. I don't know. I haven't played it. That game's like a hundred fucking hours long, but um, it is a really cool game. I just wanted to shout it out. Uh, Kingdom Come Deliverance. And by the way, 
made from some of the original developers of the original Mafia game, which okay. uh, Randall mentioned. So they did that after yep. breaking off from 2K Shack, uh, which used to be Illusion Softworks. Um, nice. So they were one of the original uh, indie developers in the Czech Republic. Um, and so they branched out into India and they did a go, uh, you know, they did a, um, not a GoFundMe. What's you call? What you call that? <laughs> you a know? Kickstarter. A Kickstarter. A Kickstarter for that game, and it was sold as uh, Skyrim or Oblivion without fantasy. Um, right. So I really appreciated that. Yeah, and yeah. I think that game, uh, when it first came out, was like a kind of broken, buggy mess, and they've really fixed it up. As far as I know, it it works now. So if you're interested in that, uh, you can go play it. Um. I guess I'll go ahead and do my lightning round real quick, yeah. unless you wanted. Did you have any more, Dave? Nope. Cool. Yeah. Um, the only other one that I had on my list, um, at least in the forefront of my mind, was uh, Metro 2033. Uh, pretty much any of the, the Metro games, except I guess I would really not say the last one, because uh, that one kind of jumps the shark in terms of the sci-fi elements and the, the fantasy stuff. Um, but the first game bleeds russian culture uh, not just like post uh soviet um era culture it's the the whole thing is uh, as uh, as russian as you could get the the whole game takes place in the moscow metro um which is one of if if i'm not mistaken it's one of the oldest like series of metro tunnels in the world um and it's literally how the the country functions so a lot of the the history and the stories told in the game while in that metro is is so deeply seated uh, in how it was built and how the people use it. Um, it's incredibly impressive. And then also there are plenty of political themes and faction conflicts in the game that um, how the the Russian people were were like uh, against the Germans and everything in World War II. It's it's all it's all really great. And uh, yeah, no Metro twenty three three was uh, my other. Randall, I think I can surmise that you like Eastern Slavic cultures about um, people fighting back against repression. I don't know. I mean, I, this is just a wild guess here, but it seems like you may be <laughs> into that particular theme. <laughs> oh, totally not. Uh, yeah, no, this is just a coincidence. I totally did. This isn't like some of my favorite parts of history that <laughs> surprisingly nobody actually fucking talks about. Like when people talk about World War II, it's always about, oh, yeah, the Americans came in after Pearl Harbor got bombed. It's like, yeah, but did. Do we are we gonna talk about Stalingrad? Are we gonna talk about how that's hey, probably hey, one of Call of Duty had the original <laughs> Stalingrad level. You know, that Call of Duty, the one that we love to hate, it had the Stalingrad level in the very first game. So it's no, that is still one of the best scenes in Call of Duty history, I swear to God. Uh <laughs> and and it's it's so visceral. I don't want to get into it too much, but oh my anyways. Eastern European culture um, normally doesn't get talked about uh, all that much unless it's in a negative context, uh, unfortunately. or I can understand why. Don't get me wrong, especially with some of the stuff that I've already talked about on this podcast. But, like, listen, the history of, uh, like, the Slavic people or Eastern European people, it's incredible what these guys put up with over the past, like, 100 200 years alone mm -hmm. i guess on my side um lightning round i don't know how many picks i get <laughs> so <laughs> dave, dave let me know um i will say first one uh kowloon's gate 
very, 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 very fucking obscure PS1 game. Never came out in the United States. But similar to what we have talked about, it takes place on 1997 in the eve of the handover, you know, from the, you know, from from England, oh, uh, from Great okay. Britain. Um, and it takes place in the Kowloon Walled City Ooh. that reemerges after it demolished. And so it takes place literally within the Walled City. And it uses all this influence of Feng Shui, you know, and all these different kind of religious motifs of yin and yang and, and you know, Buddhism, etc. To tell this completely batshit story that I can't tell you about because the game has not been fan translated. So I'm sorry, I'm giving you a game <laughs> that you cannot play. Or you can play, but you're only going to get like 25% of it. But my call here, please translate this game. I want to play this game. Please do it. It's, it's uh, because bounty. it seems... It seems so freaking cool. Um, just real quick, another one. Mark of Cree. Uh, Mark of Cree is a forgotten PS2 game done by Sony Studios San Diego, which are now just exclusively doing MLB The Show games. But before they were put on MLB The Show duty, they did this game, which was a mixture of traditional hand-drawn 2D Disney animation and Polynesian culture. And let me tell you, this game is one of the best out there. It goes for like seven or eight bucks, you know, physical on PS2. And it has a sequel, Rise of the Kasai. Go play it. It's a really, really cool game. It has great animation. It has great art style. And it's basically taking place all in Polynesian culture. So really, really cool. I would say go out and play it. Awesome. Yeah, those uh, those sound cool. Especially the, uh, the Kowloon Walled City is one of my favorite settings in fiction. Um, I would love to shout out a shadow run Hong Kong, but th- there's almost no, uh, you're not going to learn anything from playing that game. It's just a, it's just a fantasy cyberpunk game. It's awesome, but you're not going to learn yes. anything, but yeah, yeah, those are great picks. Um, we are going to listen to a little bit of music and when we come back, we've got some submissions from the community from our discord server. We're back and we're going to uh, bring in some submissions from our community, uh, from the Discord server. If you would like to take part in episodes like this and have your thoughts be a part of the show, you can join the Discord server. There's a link down in the show notes um, on top of, you know, being a part of the show from time to time. We also have a thriving and active community in there talking about video games and uh, movies and life and stuff like that. We would love to have you. It's it's a, a wonderful group of people. Again, there's an invite link down in the show notes. Without further ado, let's get started with uh, the first submission. This is from Jake, who is a patron of the show from the pre-order bonus podcast, a wonderful podcast, highly recommended. Uh, Jake shouted out Mulaka, which is from Lienzo Studios, which is a 3D action adventure game made by a Mexican studio in conjunction with the Tarahumara people, sorry about my pronunciation, Jake, of northern Mexico about their culture and uh, mythology. Uh, Jake's actually a a professor of, um, I believe, Latin American literature or something like that. So Jake's got the hookup for stuff like this. This sounds really cool. Uh, Ozzy, you were kind of lamenting the lack of games that kind of go deep into the culture and stuff like that. But it sounds like we found one uh, from Mexico. Well, this is, this is, I mean, I'm looking at it and I'm like, this is exactly what I need. This is exactly what yeah. I was looking for. 
Um, and from from what I'm looking at it here, it's it seems to be kind of a Zelda like, you know, kind of a 3D Zelda like or a Kami like, mm. if you if you if you will. Um, so I'm really curious about it. It seems to only be going for twenty dollars um, on the Switch. Um, so I might actually go and, and dig into it. I mean, it's not that it may necessarily do something in terms of mechanics that is vastly different. But sometimes all it takes is just doing, you know, taking that template from, you know, another more successful video game and building something with authenticity, you know, to, to really make you stand out. Right. I, I don't put as much of a premium as reviewers do in innovation because we've seen how much that backfires. You know, back in the 2D to 3D transition, everyone was praising 3D and <laughs> putting down any 2D games. And so... You know, again, because reviewers are constantly looking for new experiences. I feel like part of it is that reviewers review so many games that they're just looking for something different and they're just kind of trying to find something that stands out. And again, I mean, I feel like with these games, I'm fine with doing something that's been done before if you're, you know, able to capture something in a very authentic and real way and, and give me something that I haven't experienced before. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I guess we'll go into the, the, the next one. Because I don't really have anything to add other than maybe maybe Jake should just uh, start dropping some like Latin American uh, or just Latin knowledge you know, like in the in the Discord. I would like to learn more about that type of stuff. It's it's certainly a culture that I'm not super familiar with. But yeah, so uh, the other mentions. Uh, so we got Chrissy, a patron from the Retro Hangover podcast, also good friend. Uh, he mentioned Dynasty Warriors, which. <laughs> whatever he posted this i immediately went are you sure and everybody immediately went randall shut up this is definitely historical i don't know what the hell you're talking about and i was like it's you know what historical Fair. in air quotes yeah i mean from what i remember the early dynasty warrior games actually did like there were cutscenes that talked about like the actual conflicts that these generals and political figures had mm -hmm. um and then it just turns into a, a you know a, a, a musu game where they you just blow people up with your your spinning uh, pikes and <laughs> shit. Um, and he also mentioned uh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms series, uh, roughly the same vibe, <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah. like a completely different style of game, I guess. Well, I mean, uh, you, you you mentioned Dynasty Wars being about you know your fancy spinning kick. I mean, they both take the same setting. You know, which is basically the Three Kingdoms era, which was towards the end of the Han Dynasty in the second century um, in China. And they do different things with it. So the Musou games, the Dynasty Warriors games, are very much fantasy oriented, but also fantasy oriented in the sense that this is kind of in the traditional style of wuxia uh, epics uh, for Chinese cinema. You know, wuxia being so important to them where, you know, even the historical epics have some element of fantasy to them. Um, so I think Dynasty Warriors is still very much, even though we may, you know, laugh at it, but it's still very much, even though it's done by Koi Tecmo, which is Japanese, I do feel like it still respects that kind of original, you know, cultural, you know, sense of this is how we present our stories. And it's all mm -hmm. based on the original, um, you know, Romance of the Three Kingdoms novels, which, uh, was written by Luo Guanzhong. Um, and Romance of the Three Kingdoms instead, it's, it's basically a civilization type game. Um, really kind of manif manufacturing this three kingdoms period in a more realistic setting. And so it kind of really gives you a lot more flavor of what was at stake here, you know, between the states, you know, that were at war. Um, and you get to take part in it, which I think 
you know, the very best historical games tend to do that, you know, like Europa Universalis or Crusader Kings, etc. They really put you into this time and place um, and are able to to make you feel like you're making decisions, you know, based on the stakes that applied at the time. So I do feel, you know, like Chris Copeland actually, you know, was not out of line here. Um, he, you know, <laughs> no, he, no, we just <laughs> like to give Chris shit sometimes. But 100%. And to to kind of build off of the romance of the Three Kingdoms thing, I'll just mention Total War Three Kingdoms. Uh, talk about historical historical accuracy, uh, like that that the game literally has like actual historical texts within the game that you're supposed to read to understand how to play these these uh, armies that you're controlling and these cities that you're building. Except, I think it does have magic in it, Randall. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. If you're letting Dynasty Warriors fly, we're letting Total War fly. Uh, um, it's not, it's not then, exactly Total War, you know, medieval or Total War um, Rome. Uh, they've yeah, yeah, yeah. Ever since they started doing the Warhammer games, I mean, that's when they said, okay, maybe we can just add a few fireballs in here. <laughs> no. Um, and then uh, Chris's last. Um, uh, little plug here was Assassin's Creed One, of which was set in uh, Israel, Palestine, Syria. Um, I guess this just kind of opens Pandora's box with talking about Assassin's Creed. We've kind of avoided it the entire time, but um, yeah. So Assassin's Creed. Just want to shout out. This was also submitted um, by Parallax Puddles. So not to we don't want to skip you later, uh, Puddles. Appreciate you writing in. Puddles also wrote in. Uh, other assassin's creed games as well so yeah let's let's just open the assassin's creed box yeah i mean because this is one of the games that i originally had on my list and and i i had just kind of slotted them into the big franchises doing you know cultural things in a way um and i feel (laughs) like ubisoft is probably the best at doing this in terms of they're the ones that kind of go to that well more more often than not um and you can go back to the prince of persia games the prince of persia games even though they're still very fantastical and they're still seen through a Western lens. I mean, it does still kind of portray this period or at least this mythology that is not very often portrayed. I mean, you know, not like Aladdin or anything like that, probably, you know, something where it's, you know, taking place in Persia, modern day Iran, you know, and, um, and that kind of through line, that kind of lineage is seen in the Assassin's Creed games. And in particular, the first game, which is what Chris mentioned. The, the the very strong element that I was drawn to with the original Assassin's Creed, I was just completely enthralled by the possibility of Assassin's Creed. And when it was announced, I was over the moon. It was actually one of the first games that I got for the 360. And it was exactly what I wanted, which is that it gave me this very particular setting, Crusader-era Middle East. Um, and it tried to recreate these cities that you know, still may exist like Damascus, but they're not, you know, really how they used to look like anymore. And it just kind of puts you in that time and place. And I think the very best Assassin's Creed games managed to do that. And in particular, I'm thinking about Origins. I think Origins is probably the best example of doing, you know, this kind of cultural slice of life well. Not only because it manages to replicate that whole Egyptian era very authentically i mean i didn't live there i wasn't you know born at that time but but i could what i could muster is very authentic but it also takes the extra step of giving you this optional you know features 
where you can actually see a tutorial of like of like a documentary of different knowledge about all the different recreations, you know, of this world that they built. So you can, you know, read about um, the the burial practices, you know, and how they built the pyramids and how they would build the tombs, etc. And you know, the funny thing is that I played Origins when I was living in New York, and then I went to the museum, uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which has a huge Egyptian um, um, component and, and, and wing. And I was just thinking, oh, yeah, I read about that in Assassin's Creed Origins, or I read about this, or this is this, or this is that. I think that the very best Assassin's Creed games do that. And what is so exciting about Assassin's Creed games, even though, you know, they've kind of lost their luster, is thinking... Where are they going to set the the world now? Because I want them to recreate that world. I want to be able to walk the streets of Damascus in the 12th century. I don't... Again, I mean, it's so rare to find that experience that I think this is where video games shine. And I wish that Assassin's Creed didn't go so batshit crazy with this futuristic storyline <laughs> and the way right. that they change, you know, gameplay like they change pants. Um, but... I think in the very best cases, Assassin's Creed is able to put you in a time and place in a very, what you would feel would be authentic way. Yeah, I agree. I think that like the best thing that Assassin's Creed did for me, especially like the first one and um, kind of with Black Flag, you know, set in the Caribbean and stuff, um, I didn't play Origins. But the best thing that the Assassin's Creed games did for me was give me curiosity to go then learn more about that history on my own. Uh, because I, when I was making my list, I didn't really consider Assassin's Creed because maybe it was because of the lack of commitment to the historical setting. It, it feel it, I always felt like in those older games, especially that just when you feel like you're getting into it, they pull you out for like the future storyline with Desmond. And I... I hated that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Throughout the entire series, every game I played, I always groaned uh, when we got pulled into the future timeline. So I like, I wish they would have committed more to giving you that, that old time and place, but uh, it did inspire me uh, to go learn a little bit about those places on my own, uh, which I, I will give it credit for. But I don't think that the authenticity necessarily is an issue, Dave. I, I think that the authenticity is there. They have historians. They have consultants that they work on. They try to replicate the, the, the cities based on old uh, uh, maps of the city, etc. The problem is that it's constantly undermined by this batch of story um, right. and, and yeah, the futuristic I, I, part. I wasn't know? questioning like the authenticity of the spaces that they created. It's just like, I wish they would have committed to that and only that. I don't want to be pulled out of that for like this weird future storyline that they're trying to tell every couple hours. That That's the yeah. issue. Trust me, I, I lament it every day. I, I yeah. every, every single time <laughs> I look at Assassin's Creed, I think to myself, why the hell can't you guys just not do something with this future storyline and just kind of do a historical <laughs> epic. They they right. heard the criticism the entire the entire time. Since what, like 2008, something like seven. that. They heard seven. Seven. seven the entire time they heard that criticism and the entire time they doubled down on that shit. Guys, pretty much. Assassin's Creed is 16 years old. Yeah. Think about that. <laughs> yeah, don't don't get me started, but I one, one uh point that I'll also give Assassin's Creed one credit for is it takes place in a place that was incredibly controversial at the time um, mm. and only seen in a negative light. 
and yes. you, Ubis- and to give Ubisoft all the credit in the world, they took a place that a lot of folks, especially in the Western world, hated for a lot of reasons, and they showed how beautiful the culture could be uh, from a different perspective of somebody who lived there, who breathed there. And it was just, I think I thought I found it extremely impressive when I was a kid because, you know, I grew up around people who only like my mom didn't even want me to buy the game because of where she knew where it took place. Mm. It was that bad. Real quick, before we get off of Assassin's Creed is uh, Ozzy is what you were mentioning. Is that the museum mode where you can Yeah, the museum mode? Okay. Yeah. Uh, A couple other people in the discord server shouted that out um, specifically Desba and then in parentheses, the other Adam. So shout out Adam slash Desba for shouting out the museum mode of uh, origins and Odyssey. Uh, So yeah, Uh, Assassin's Creed will allow it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) That was definitely a lightning round. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think we had to talk about Assassin's Creed a little bit in this. They are, the most famous uh, franchise doing these real world locations. Right. Yeah. And uh, okay. So, so I have here from Alex from the first five YouTube channel, he mentions Venba and he also mentions uh, Raji, an ancient epic, which incidentally was also mentioned by this chimera. So thank you, this chimera. Right. And uh, both of them are dealing with Indian culture. Um, he also mentions the Metro series uh, Necrobarista, which he says has a lot of fantasy, but also a lot of Australia, uh, haven't played it. Uh, and then the, the historical strategy games, which, we, which we have discussed in some capacity, Europa Universalis, Europa Universalis, Crusader Kings, and Total War Three Kingdoms. Um, so those are pretty cool. I thought about Raji, an ancient epic, and I feel like that definitely is in the wheelhouse of what we were talking about. I just didn't know enough about it. Yeah. Um, to be able to, to, to speak to it, but I do remember that it was, put together i think in one of the xbox showcases if i recall correctly for game pass mm-hmm. and uh and i think a big selling point of it was just this is taking place in in you know very much within this indian tradition um so it's very cool that you know it seems like some people you know really found that to be interesting yeah yeah one of the selling points for raji in particular was again it's made by people making a game about their own culture and stuff, uh, which, which is great. And when it came out, it was, I feel like there were tons of people that were like, finally, someone made a game about this. Yeah. 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 And, um, I'll, it, <laughs> I'll just put a small point on the, the Necrobarista thing. Uh, yeah, it, it is a lot of fantasy in a lot of Australia. It <laughs> takes place in Melbourne and just how incredibly hipster Melbourne is and how uh, absolutely addicted to to coffee um <laughs> that that whole whole situation is uh and, and also talking about like the native um i think voodoo would be the the incorrect um like what's a comparison but it's like th- there is a real significance for like the native folk and like necromancy and stuff like that so that it all it, it, the fantastical elements are still seated deep within australia's history but necrobrister is also a really good time yeah, it's interesting, like, uh, we we talk about a game that's, <laughs> I like the description, very fantasy, but also very Australian. Um, talking with our, our Australian friends and, you know, the podcast community and the Discord server and stuff, uh, not many games set in Australia. Even the even the Australians are like, ah, I don't I don't fucking know. Uh, so I, I wanted to shout out an upcoming game that looks cool. I don't know how 
steeped in Australian culture it's going to be, but it's called Broken Roads, uh, which is a Disco Elysium Fallout style game set in like post-apocalyptic Australia. Uh, That sounds cool. And apparently there are just not enough games set in Australia for, you know, as I don't know, I, I feel like Australia, at least in like my upbringing, like Australian humor and influence and stuff is bigger than like its impact on like, you know, games set there and and media set there seems to be. So I'm glad that like we we might have one coming out. I hope that came out right. I'm not trying to diminish Australia. (laughs) Uh, Love you all. But it was surprising to me where I was like, yeah, any Australians know of a game set in Australia that we can mention? They're like, nope, don't know. So (laughs) unfortunately, or I guess fortunately, um, however you want to take the point but uh, a lot of games that do take place in australia tend to be about like wildlife conservatism like uh, like zoo management systems stuff Mm. like that just because of how 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 deeply tied uh, australia is to conserving the wildlife that it does have oh Um, i was gonna say based on how fucking wild the wildlife is there Correct. But uh, like a lot of the a lot of the games that are based in Australia, like they don't overtly say it. But whenever you play them, you're like, oh, yeah, this is this is extremely Australian. But it's a it's a management game about taking care of animals. Mm, gotcha. Shout out to Keo the kangaroo. Yeah. <laughs> and Ty the Tasmanian tiger. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we've got another submission here from Nomad from the Retro Wildlands podcast. What's up, Nomad? Uh, Nomad shouts out Spec Ops The Line, uh, which is set in Dubai. Um, and when Nomad sent this, I was like, eh, I don't know, but we'll hear him out. It says he had never really seen the scope of Dubai before playing the game, kind of focusing on ultra modern architecture and hinting at some of the social divides within the city, even after, you know, in that game, Dubai is swallowed by like an apocalyptic sandstorm so like reading that description i'm like yes that that makes a lot of sense the i feel like the the scope of like just those buildings and like you said the social divide there and stuff um i'll allow it nomad you're okay i I won't i won't dave (laughs) okay okay (laughs) no i feel like look i mean this is a retelling of apocalypse now and i feel like really you know that that story is really about colonialism um and you know kind of transposed to american i i guess you know war on terror times um you know applicable to the middle east so in a way it's kind of the quintessential criticism of western encroachment so in a way yes i mean it's it's a it's a critique of western you know moors you know being pushed on these people you know who have no choice um but but i don't think you know it really does a lot with you know the culture in Dubai, um, you know, other than just having, you know, cannon fodder for 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 your your character, which again, Not I mean, that. it turns it turns back it turns back you know the story on you know the subversive element of you know maybe you really are the bad guy, but but I don't think necessarily it it goes into you know what these people are going through necessarily. Not from that aspect, no, but just from the pure scope of like maybe you heard about. Dubai and then you play a game that's set there and you're like wow okay I I see how big these places are like that that simple aspect of it and you 
you do get a little bit later of like how people are suffering in that game, but it, it's because of stuff that you're doing. So. <laughs> you're doing. You're, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're yeah. inflicting the suffering. I I would say it's a complete uh, it's a complete opposite, but also a friend of this war of mine in that <laughs> in that mm. aspect because yeah. uh, instead of playing the survivor, you are in fact playing the problem. Yeah. Shout out uh, real quick to the episode of Tales from the Backlog I did about Spec Ops the Line with our uh, mutual friend Chris Copeland from Retro Hangover, uh, one of mm-hmm. my favorite spoiler section discussions uh, that we've had on the show. So I'll just shout that out. That game, yeah. was, honestly, that's one of those games like, you know, I guess this war of mine where it was just grueling to play. Um, yeah. And it got to a point where I was just like, all right, I'm going to have to force myself to finish this game. <laughs> but you know it is what it is but i get i get where uh, nomad is coming from and i admire it i don't agree with it necessarily but um but i'll you know i'll accept that that argument <laughs> and then uh so we have another submission here and this is from chris aka vertigo to hell uh also vertigo to hell on twitch so please drop a follow there um they mentioned Home Sweet Home, a horror game set in Thailand and is loaded with spooky Thai folklore that they never knew about. Uh, I actually think um, somebody on the Retro Hangover podcast just got finished streaming uh, Home Sweet Home. <laughs> so uh, double plug, you could probably uh, go watch two different types of reactions to, to these games. I don't know if uh, mm-hmm. Vertigo to Hell streamed it at all, but... If they didn't, uh, this is now this is now the calling card to to go do so. Um, and then they also mentioned detention and devotion, which we talked about at the beginning. They also mentioned Kingdom uh, Come Deliverance. Uh, so they seem to like a lot of the same games that you do, Dave. I, I do know that Chris did stream. Like, I don't know if he finished the playthrough of Kingdom Come Deliverance, but he streamed a lot of it. So if you want to go check out what that game is like, you can go watch uh, some of Chris's videos, assuming he has them saved somewhere. Um, And then, yeah, I would guess that he also streamed Home Sweet Home. Uh, That game looked pretty bad from what I watched on the uh, the stream that Retro Hangover was doing, but giving you the Thai folklore is cool. Thailand is a setting you never get in video games. Never. Well, I've I've seen the game pop up on sales and the like, and I always find like, okay, well, this is maybe one of those uh, filler games that pop up on the on the eShop or the PlayStation Network. So now I'm a little bit more intrigued. So if I find it for a decent price, I I might pick it up and see what it's about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, that is all the submissions that we have uh, for this topic. Um, I appreciate everybody who wrote in. Again, if you want to be a part of these, all you need to do is join the Discord server, and I will put out the call every now and then for your submissions for these types of uh, discussion-type episodes. That is all we've got, so we just got a little bit of housekeeping to uh, clean up here at the end. Ozzy and Randall, do you guys have anything that you want to plug anywhere that people can find you? Well, you you, ahead, can find, you can find me on usually the Retro Hangover Podcast Discord. That's kind of where I, I kind of relegate my, my internet uh, presence to nowadays. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm there running the, the Retro Hangover Review Crew, uh, the hallmark of which continues to be our discussion on Disco Elysium. So um, <laughs> you don't know what you're missing out if you didn't take uh, part in the great battle of Disco Elysium of January 2023. Um, <laughs> you were forced to take a side. Um, so if you want to be part of that, anybody can join. We just play a game every month and we talk about it basically. Um, and we get to nominate games for the next, um, month. So 
it's just a good opportunity to just kind of all collectively play a game, kind of like a book of the month type thing, but, you know, game of the month. So you can usually find me there uh, and uh, would love to have more participating. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find me in a bunch of different discords from local podcasters that, uh, have been on the tube before. Uh, that is your, that it, that is the official title you use, right, Dave? The tube. Yes. Yeah. The tube. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I do hang out in Dave's discord. I hang out in the retro hangover podcast discord, the, the good, the bad, and the backlog pixel project radio. I'm in all of those. I don't have anything into the plug other than those podcasts that I just mentioned. Uh, you should go follow them. You should go all go listen to them if you haven't already. Uh, obviously, I love Dave, and thank you for allowing me to be here. And I'll also double double plug the the uh, like retro hangover review crew thing. Um, I will admit some of the games that get that get picked. Uh, <laughs> if we had more people participating, we could have we could have better picks. This this <laughs> month was especially difficult. I did vote for the pick, but man, it was it was rough to get through uh, for for personal reasons. But please come join us and and vote on games, play the games, write a review. Um, that that be that be super awesome to have more participation in that. Yeah, and we and we embrace democracy in the Retro Hangover Review Crew. So if a game gets picked. You have no one to blame but yourselves. So <laughs> that's, that's all right. I will say. Yep. Yeah, it, it is a good time. So I'll, I'll go ahead and, and third that plug. I, that's not a real thing that people say. I will support that plug to uh, join the Retro Hangover Discord, join the uh, Retro Hangover Review Crew. Yeah, the Game of the Month Club over there. Um, you can also join the High Score Challenge if you're into High Score Challenges over there too. Enough, uh, enough plugging retro hangover. Let me talk about myself <laughs> for a little bit here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I already gave the plug to join uh, my discord server, but I also have uh, some other stuff that's really helpful, um, such as going on your favorite podcast app and leaving a rating and review. So if in the odd situation that someone went into their search bar and typed in games with real world settings, not the United States and Japan, uh, that would help juice the algorithm in my favor. That would be great. But also, you know, if someone goes in and types in dead space, it'll help them find this podcast. So ratings and reviews are super helpful. If you want to support monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash real Dave Jackson. And all patron supporters get to vote in polls for what games I do on the show. There are bonus episodes, including, I forgot to mention this before, I talked about detention at the top of the show. In October, I did a bonus episode about detention. That's just solo Dave talking about detention. So It was uh, really good. It was really yeah. good. Thank you. Uh, go ahead and go to patreon.com slash real Dave Jackson if that sounds good to you. So, Ozzy, Randall, thank you guys for coming on the show. This has been fantastic. This is exactly what I had in mind. I appreciate you guys. Oh, thank you, Dave, for putting appreciate it together. You. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned next week. I think, well, let me think about what's what's going on. Oh, first week of December is coming up, so we've got some cool games on the horizon. We've got Sea of Stars coming up. We've got Final Fantasy X and Blasphemous 2. Those are the games in December. So, Thank you all for listening. I appreciate you as always. Tune in next week for the next game to come out of the backlog.